it would have been a day of national disgrace if that part of the Internal Markets Bill had ever been enacted. Um, there are no punches to be pulled on that. Welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer, together with my colleagues Helen Mountfield and Murray Hunt. This podcast was created to publicise and promote the centrality of the rule of law to the protection of human rights. And over the course of the past 20 months, we've had conversations with lawyers and activists from across the globe, which have served to underline the fragility of the rule of law, even in what are sometimes described as mature democracies. We've discussed how this steady uptick in the number and nature of authoritarian regimes have eroded civil liberties, be it close to home in Hungary and Poland, or further afield in countries such as India, Hong Kong, Tanzania, or uh, any given number of Central American states, and in which a shared feature of those countries has been a willingness of the courts to acquiesce in the undermining of constitutional norms. Of course, it's not all been gloomy news. Election integrity has been bravely protected by the Supreme Court of Malawi. Changes to the Kenyan constitution sponsored by the ruling parties were recently declared unlawful by their Supreme Court. And in the United States, court after court roundly rejected challenges to the election process brought by the Trump campaign and its surrogates. Key to all this, both good and bad, has been the role of courts and judges. An independent judiciary is, of course, a bedrock of any system that purports to adhere to the rule of law, a principle widely recognised, not least in the Montreal Universal Declaration on the Independence of the Judiciary. But what are the essential ingredients that determine whether a judicial system is able or willing to protect the rule of law and fundamental rights? What role, if any, have judges to play when the rule of law is at risk? And what are the principles that should govern the behaviour of judges in such circumstances? Well, we're delighted that here to discuss some of these issues is one of the United Kingdom's most distinguished jurists, Lord David Newberger. As perhaps everyone listening will know, Lord Newberger was the second president of the Supreme Court, having previously served as master of the roles and in both capacities delivered very many landmark judgments concerning the rule of law and the protection of fundamental rights. Since retirement from the English judiciary, Lord Newberger's various activities have included chairing the high-level panel of legal experts on media freedom and serving as a non-permanent judge of the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal, a capacity that we'll turn and ask him some questions about in due course. David, thank you very much uh, indeed for joining us. Um, Can I start with a a basic but fundamental question, which is what do we mean um, by the rule of law? Is it simply abiding by a set of rules or does it encapsulate uh, wider values such as the protection of human rights and or um, democratic values? And just give that question a bit of context. Um, In apartheid South Africa or post-33 Germany, Uh, They had a clear set of rules. They had uh, high-level lawyers. They had courts um, applying laws that were constitutionally valid but morally repugnant. Is that the rule of law or is something else required? 
some might say this is a typical lawyer's or academic argument about what you mean by an expression. And the more important issue is what you actually have, the, the actual arrangements you have rather than what you call it. You can perfectly well argue that the rule of law is a purely uh, procedural thing, which uh, means that there are rules which govern the relationship between state and citizens and which govern relationships between citizen and citizen. And the rules simply have to be both available for everybody to know and to be enforced. And whatever they contain, that's the rule of law. And that's one view. The other version of the rule of law, which I think is much more attractive morally, socially, and in the long run, I expect, um, economically, uh, is a rule of law which requires the actual contents of the laws to satisfy certain requirements, perhaps at the most basic you've already identified, to respect human rights and democracy. And I think these days that's what most people mean by the rule of law. It's fair to say uh, that uh, the rule of law in the second, more attractive sense, uh, can be said to be more dependent on the times you live in and the place you live in. I mean, most human rights that we take for granted these days, 400 years ago in this country, uh, under Henry VIII or even Elizabeth I, wouldn't have been recognised at all by most people. And we all know that there are substantial countries in the world where what we regard as unacceptable practices uh, occur in accord with the law. But for me, the rule of law has the second more socially and morally defensible meaning. What's the link in your view then between the rule of law and democracy? I mean, it might be well understood that certain fundamental rights um, have to be enshrined within any system that respects the rule of law. Uh, and most regimes, even the most authoritarian, will at least proclaim to protect you from fundamental rights. What's the relationship with democracy? I, I think that's a very deep and interesting question. I mean, they're, they're in a sense entirely separate and each of them is fundamental uh, to our idea of, of civilised society without uh, the rule of law and without democracy or without one of them, you wouldn't have what I would have thought was a, an acceptable society. I, I've rather come to the view that although democracy gets far more coverage and is far more uh, interesting to people and far more redolent of um, characters and gossip, um, that actually democracy is if you have to choose between them, is fundamentally less important than the rule of law. But I do think it's fundamentally important. But of course, democracy is more nuanced in the sense that the sort of democracy we have is a fairly dilute sort of democracy. We have the right to vote every five years or so for a, a representative, but our representatives are, are pre-selected and in many constituencies your vote doesn't really matter. Um, that's the system at work. But I think the important thing about democracy is that it means that you avoid dictatorship. But the most fundamental thing about democracy is that you have a system of government which is acceptable morally and socially to the great majority of people. Why is that less important than the rule of law? Because I think that without the rule of law, uh, you society cannot function. Um, I think that in our present system in this country, I quite accept that without democracy, it would be unacceptable. But, but to, to, to me, the rule of law, you, a country like China works and now works because they have the rule of law. 
but they don't have democracy. Um, and I think that is evidence that you can have a society, it's not a society I'd want to live in, but you can have a society that works very well, provided it's accepted by the great majority of people, which doesn't have democracy. So you can have some pretty awful regimes that apply the rule of law, um, and they might be preferable to societies that don't have the rule of law but are broadly democratic? Yes, I think it would be very difficult, but again, I'm not enough of a historian or political scientist to know, to have a democratic society that doesn't have the rule of law. But it may be possible. I suppose that a sort of ultra-populist government might satisfy that test. But I think, love it or hate it, and I hate it, uh, a non-democratic society with the rule of law can work. And I suspect a democratic society without the rule of law would not work. Um, yes, I, I was just thinking that um, in, in our system, and I think the judges in, in the UK are very cautious and respectful of the rules of the different, of the kind of assumed roles of the different arms of the state, the executive, the legislature and the judiciary. Um, but no, if you take an absolute, I was just wondering whether you can have the rule of law if you take a very strict and absolute approach to uh, parliamentary sovereignty, because you could have an ultra-populist elected government that decided to make enormous restrictions on what the judges could decide and said, we will still have an election in five years, but the judges can't decide on whether it's a fair election. The judges can't decide on what these rules mean. We will tell you. I, I think that's a, that's a very important point, and it illustrates something which can be said to be almost more important than the rule of law and democracy in a sense, which is having a regime, or whatever you choose to call it, uh, where the culture is acceptable, where everyone accepts that they have to act within certain bounds, that their powers are limited, uh, that there are other sources of power within the country, uh, and that each respects the other. If you have that, you will have a democratic system, in my view, and you will have the rule of law. But once you have parliamentary sovereignty, for example, carried to an extreme, as you describe, then things begin to break down. And that's why I think that fundamentally having the right culture, having an ex people accepting the limits of their powers uh, and respecting other sources of power is so important. And I think that's what, to me, I'm not saying it was justified or not, I suspect it might have been to some extent, what was the concern over people like uh, President Trump? Yeah. And, and and do you think that ultimately judges are guardians of a constitutional culture? Is that Very that much so. I think that with all their privileges of irremovability, uh, not depending on popular support, uh, uh, the judges are in a very good position uh, to uphold principle, even at the expense of lack of popularity and lack of support when it's appropriate. It carries with it an enormous responsibility and it carries with it uh, an awareness of the limits of your powers because you are not democratically accountable, because you can't easily be removed. Uh, and therefore to be very careful about when you exercise your powers and how you exercise them. Again, it comes back to my point about respecting other sources of power. Uh, Murray. Thank you, Richard. David, can I just go back to that 
richer, thicker conception of the rule of law that uh, that you outlined. Um, that, of course, was um, Tom Bingham's conception. I think the big breakthrough in his account of the rule of law was that addition of the dimension of there being adequate legal protection for certain fundamentals, including including human rights. And I think that his account is sort of universally acknowledged as as um, articulating that very, very powerfully. I'm, I'm interested in your remark that that's what most people these days would would consider to be the rule of law. Um, and in particular, whether from all your years of experience in, in our legal system and working with the legal profession and uh, the senior judiciary, whether you think that we can confidently assume that that is actually the consensus um, in, in this country, in the legal profession amongst the judiciary. Well, we all, we all live in bubbles. Um, and Brexit was a very good example of that. Um, most people moved in circles where everyone tended to agree with, with their views. Um, and when it comes to something like the rule of law, particularly for a judge or ex-judge uh, to express a view as to how most people see it, it's a little arrogant or presumptuous. Um, I would say that the major- great majority of people in the law I've come across with, uh, would very much see the rule of law in the Bingham type of perspective, as you describe it, rather than in the very narrow perspective, as Richard uh, exemplified through South Africa or post-1933 Germany, uh, being within the concept of the rule of law. I'm not saying everyone would agree with everything Tom Bingham says, of course, that's pushing it, but with his general idea. Uh, I think that the Human Rights Act has brought this sharply into focus, and one only has to read Tom's book to see how large a part that's played in, in, in people's thinking on the topic. Can I come back to um, the position of this country uh, in a moment, but first just turn back to the international theme that I set out in the introduction. So we've seen really over the past couple of years um, some countries in which judges have proved to be the bulwark between democracy and autocracy, um, others in which they've really become accessories to a political power grab. To, To what extent... Is it possible to kind of identify common themes, allowing us to understand um, what dictates when judges are able to withstand pressure and when they're not? I can't pretend to have an answer to that other than to fall back on the slightly generalised, almost trite proposition that a lot's to do with the culture of the country. I mean, I've had a little bit, I can't pretend an enormous amount, to do with countries which in mostly in Eastern Europe or nearby, which are concerned uh, with Um, judicial corruption, either heavy or mild, that exists at the time and how to get rid of it. And one gets very conscious of the fact that once corruption has entered into any system, it's extremely difficult to get rid of it. Um, I I think that um, clearly systems like communism, where you have the sort of problem that Helen was identifying of a single centre of power, simply... The, the, the government, as it were, the the, the Communist Party, uh, or it's not necessarily communist, it can be any any um, totalitarian system, then that affects the judiciary, and the judiciary simply become part of the system and are not a judiciary in the sense we recognise it. I mean, what's the role of how judges are selected? I mean, what role does, might that play in sort of understanding how robust a judiciary might be? Uh, in I think that's a very good question. I think, again, I'm sorry to sound like a scratch record, but coming back to the point about culture, I mean, the way we selected judges uh, before the Constitutional Reform Act came into effect 
uh, was for the Lord Chancellor, who was a politically appointed minister, effectively, uh, effectively chose who the ju- new judges were to be. But particularly in recent times, um, the, the, with Lord Mackay uh, uh, for the Conservatives and then Lord Irvin for Labour, we had two, if you like, politically committed um, people, but people whose primary commitment was to the rule of law and who selected judges uh, according to their ability uh, and not according to anything to do with their politics. But clearly, uh, if the Prime Minister had chosen a more politically committed and less committed to the rule of law person, uh, that would have been a problem. Uh, I, I think involving politicians in selection of judges is generally very dangerous. But it's fair to say that in Germany, for example, the selection of judges for the Constitutional Court uh, is done politically. But the political parties work together on this issue in an extremely constructive, if you like, apolitical way. So to say that it is wrong to involve politicians is an overgeneralization. You have to look at the United States to see why it can be said to be wrong to involve politicians. But then you look at Germany and you can see it, it can be done. My own feeling quite strongly, particularly for this country where politicians' involvement has become very, very slight, is that we should do our utmost to keep it that way. Introducing politicians into a system where they don't exist, I would have thought would be one of the stupidest things you could do in that connection. Well, can I ask you... um about the domestic position. Um, and I you know, appreciate that um, obviously your, your, your past roles and your current roles make um, commenting on politics um, sensitive. Um, but I want to ask really about, from a rule of law perspective, what are the, um, what are the canaries in the cage? I mean, last, last month, Lord Evans, in a different context, the former um, Director General of MI5, warned about the threat to democracy in the aftermath of the Owen Patterson affair. That's in the context of political conduct. From a rule of law perspective, what should people be sensitive to in terms of proposals um, that might lead to um, a more fundamental undermining of the rule of law? It's very difficult to tread between the scylla of being alarmist and the Charybdis of being complacent. Um, it's fair to say that we are have been generally in this country very fortunate in terms of politicians and the media uh, leaving the judges alone and not subjecting them uh, to unfair criticism uh, and worse. Of course, there have been exceptions. New Home Secretaries from time to time have made inappropriate comments, but to be fair to them, they've then stopped. Uh, we were all particularly shocked by the enemies of the people headline because it was so unusual as well as it's so inappropriate. So in that sense, I think things in this country are actually rather good. But we have had recently um, two aspects of concern. One is that attacks on the judiciary uh, largely emanating from the prorogation case, I think, uh, talking about getting rid of the Supreme Court, uh, talking about clipping the judicial wings, 
uh, and secondly, uh, connected but not the same, cutting down powers of judges on a function which they have no more important function than, uh, namely uh, judicial review. Um, here again, one has to be careful of distinguishing, I think, between political saber-rattling, and lawyers perhaps are particularly sensitive to that because we are more careful with our words and less emotional when we say things we really mean them, uh, whereas politicians use words in a somewhat different way. And that's why I say we have to be careful about being alarmist. But on the other hand, uh, to be trite, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and the price of maintaining judicial independence and the important role of the judiciary uh, does involve uh, being vigilant. And I think that one has to watch very carefully proposals uh, such as uh, those in the um, Judicial Review and Courts Bill at the moment, um, which, to be fair to the government, are much less extensive in terms of cutting down judicial review uh, than the uh, more emotional language of, of, of government ministers have been in the past. And uh, secondly, which is a matter of speculation, uh, what they intend to do about human rights. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, to, to what um, degree um, should we see the um, threat and proposals to repeal the Human Rights Act um, in the context of threats to rule of law? Or is it just a normal day at the legislative coalface? I think I'd make two positive or non-negative comments. First of all, and very obviously, uh, to discuss proposals before one's even seen what they are is a little uh, dangerous, to put it mildly, and therefore we have to wait and see. And secondly, the mere idea that they want to make amendments to the present state of the law is not of itself sinister. The law is continuously moving topic and answering to changes in society, and it's not unreasonable to look at it. I mean, when it came to judicial review, Edward Fakes's uh, report is an example of the fact that it's sensible to look at things and there are changes that can be made. Having said that, on the positive side, um, some of the comments that have been made uh, about what the uh, changes to the Human Rights Act might be are, are potentially alarming and um, of concern to put it at its lowest. And um, I wait to see with some trepidation what's proposed. But to comment on what they might or might not do, I I'm not sure it's very helpful unless there are any specific points you want to make, in which case I'll try and deal with them. Well, I am going to try and um, ask you about one particular, not about the Human Rights Act, but one other uh, aspect of recent government policy, because it is important, potentially from a rule of law perspective, which is the when we talk about the rule of law, what's the relevance of international law? and the international law frameworks that we're part of, either because we signed up to treaties or because it's part of customary law. And I, I ask you that question in a particular context, obviously the Internal Markets Bill, which was, I think, the first time that the government has actually legislated to breach international, or threatened to legislate to breach international law obligations. From a rule of law perspective, um, how troubling is that? It would have been a day of national disgrace, if that part of the Internal Markets Bill had ever been enacted. Um, there are no punches to be pulled on that. For um, the, the Parliament of the United Kingdom to legislate in terms uh, that the government was going to break international law 
was an outrage in my view. And um, I think that the point is this, of course there's a difference between international law and domestic law. But international law is what binds the government internationally, just as national law is what binds every citizen nationally. And the government's, there's no more important function of the government nationally uh, than to pass laws and enforce laws and require citizens to observe the law. If the government itself publicly, through parliament, uh, gets a statute which authorises it, indeed requires it, I think, uh, to breach international law, then its moral authority uh, for requiring citizens to observe the law in this country is just dissipated, apart from being inappropriate in terms of international relations uh, when we complain about other countries breaking the law. I, I thought it was worse than outrageous. I thought it was ludicrous. David, there was another very objectionable aspect of the Internal Markets Bill from a rule of law perspective, which was the ouster clause. Um, and that brings us back again to the what, what is in the Judicial Review and Courts Bill, uh, which, although much more modest than many had feared when the Independent Review of Administrative Law was first announced, still does contain quite a significant approach to ouster clauses. And um, I just wonder if we can uh, relate that back to our initial discussion about different conceptions of the rule of law. If Parliament can simply remove the jurisdiction of the superior courts over inferior tribunals and, and other decision makers with statutory powers, it's hard to see a way in which that can be consistent with the broader conception of the rule of law, which requires access to court to test the legality of the exercise of those powers, even by inferior tribunals. And my concern about the Judicial Review and Courts Bill is that that will establish a precedent for that sort of approach to ouster clauses, which in this particular case in the bill itself may appear to be rather inoffensive, but actually is premised upon a view uh, which really embodies that formalistic conception of the rule of law. Uh, which we discussed at the outset. I, I'm just wondering uh, whether you, you share a concern about the government's approach to ouster clauses, uh, which doesn't appear to take seriously the fundamental nature of the right of access to court to challenge the unlawful exercise of powers. The trouble with ouster clauses, rather like Henry VIII clauses, is that there may be occasions where they're appropriate. I unlike Henry VIII clauses, I find it hard to think of circumstances where it might be appropriate, but there may be some. Therefore, to say blanketly that ouster clauses are always inappropriate may be dangerous. But I think the idea that they should be generally acceptable, or I'll put it further, the idea that they could be acceptable in anything other than exceptional circumstances, uh, which would have to be justified very precisely, uh, in my view, um, is, is only has to be stated to be seen to be correct. And to that extent, I agree with you. I think that the ouster clause aspect is the most worrying part of, of the bill um, when it comes to the rule of law. Because once you start down that road, you can eventually exclude judicial review uh, from an enormous amount of uh, executive and even quasi-judicial activity. So yes, um, you're right. I agree. 
Can I ask you one final question about domestic policy in the rule of law context, which is funding of um, cases and um, whether or not funding or lack of funding um, falls to be understood as an aspect of the rule of law and any concerns you do or don't have about the current position? Funding undoubtedly is part of the rule of law. Uh, I think I've said before more than once that giving people rights and then uh, depriving them of the ability uh, to enforce those rights is almost worse than not giving them the rights at all. It's the sort of thing that dictatorships do. You have a wonderful constitution, but it's only a piece of paper. And if you give people rights, but don't enable them to enforce those rights by getting legal advice as to what their rights are and getting legal, uh, getting the, the money to uh, be able to go to court uh, to enforce those rights, uh, then uh, you are not observing the rule of law because enforcement uh, is every bit as much part of the rule of law as actually having the laws. You have to be able to enforce them. So yes, I'm sure it is part of the rule of law. And I am concerned about the extent to which uh, the government has now fallen back on uh, law centres, filling the gap uh, and the like, when it comes to legal advice. And legal advice is often overlooked as an important aspect of this rather than going to court. And I think, if anything, legal advice is more important because how do you go to court unless you've got the advice in the first place? Uh, And many people need to be advised. So I think getting legal advice is fundamentally important and therefore making it available to people who can't afford it by funding it is vital. Uh, And similarly, going to court and enabling them to go to court. And the way that legal aid has been cut down uh, progressively uh, since the end of the last century is, to my mind, of, of great concern. David, could I just move now and ask you about the sort of um, climate in which judges are having to operate and the uh, what's legitimate and not legitimate to take into account? So it's really a question in two parts, which is firstly, to what degree um, do judges, are judges mindful of the kind of the, the wider impact, the threats from government, the attacks in the media? Uh, and to what degree um, do they or should they take that into account in the decisions that they reach? The first question is an easy one. Any sensible judge will keep a very careful eye on what is being said in the press and on, in other media and what is being said by politicians uh, in and out of Parliament uh, about um, the role of the judges about the rule of law. The extent to which you take it into account is a more difficult question. I think the judges have to be aware of public opinion and have to take it into account. But identifying public opinion simply from what is in a particular newspaper or what a particular politician says is difficult. And the other difficult question is judges have to take a longer term view than politicians and the press. And to, to, to take into account features that you think are short term is, is, is wrong. But knowing what's short term, what's long term is difficult. And of course, sometimes there is a long term view that is contrary to the rule of law. And then a judge has to stand up against it. So it's a difficult question to answer in, in, in general, much further than that. But, well, I mean, let me give a, 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 a um, 
try and tie it down a bit then. I mean, in terms of the context now in which their government threats to uh, narrow down um, judicial review because it said that judges are entering the realm of politics, should judges be more cautious than they might otherwise be in judicial reviews that raise issues of political sensitivity, even if they fall within um, a, a legal framework? I think that's a difficult question to answer. I mean, there will be... The problem, as usual, is in the shadows. There'll be the dark area where clearly it's a political issue. You don't have to, you shouldn't get involved. There'll be the daylight area where clearly this is your function to deal with. And then there are the twilight areas where, for instance, in the Supreme Court, you might often get differences of opinion between the judges. And sometimes you won't. They may agree, but it may be a difficult point where views could differ. And I suspect that there might be a degree of uh, judicial pulling back of horns, but uh, pulling in of horns. But I suspect that it may not be so much due to what's being said at the moment or being argued about. But we have had, really, if you like, since Annie's Minnick in the late 1960s, we've had, in a way, we've had um, 50 years of increasing judicial involvement and looking at the judges' relative passivity before 1970, you might well say about time too. But there's been 50 years of fairly continuous judicial expansion and not inappropriate expansion, but gradual and encouraged by government through the statutes such as the Human Rights Act and Constitutional Reform Act and other Freedom of Information Act. It's been not just done by the judges. But if there is a pulling in of horns to a bit, a bit of consolidation after 50 years, we shouldn't regard it as too surprising or too sinister. Again, one's in danger of being um, too complacent. One has to be careful that it doesn't go too far. But the fact that it's occurring is not necessarily a sign that we should be worried about. David, can I move finally to the kind of moral dilemmas that judges face, particularly in in jurisdictions other than our own, uh, when there are judges who have to or are asked to apply laws that they consider are immoral, or indeed they find themselves within systems that are themselves unjust or uh, immoral. Um, I mean, an example we've really touched on South Africa, their um, members of the judiciary and the legal profession had a very difficult decision to make whether to um, stay in and try and ameliorate the worst of the regime or to leave it because of a fear that they were lending it legitimacy. Are there any standards um, that help the judge decide whether to stay or go? Are there any litmus tests? It could be said that I'm in that position sitting as a judge in Hong Kong. And I think that there are two features. One's easy and one's difficult. The easy feature is, are the judges independent? Is the government interfering with the judicial process? If you form the view that they are, then you go. You can't stay. The more difficult question is, if the judges are being asked to administer a law and set of laws that they don't approve of, and they find unacceptable. And that is a question of degree. Um, 
uh, as a judge in this country, there were statutes I didn't agree with, there were laws I didn't agree with, there were legal principles I didn't agree with. And if you adopt the attitude that you only apply laws that you approve of, then there are very few places you could be a judge. So it's a question of degree. Well, I suppose a difference isn't there with here in Hong Kong. I mean, um, here, the, the, the laws, you might not like them, but they're passed by a democratic parliament. In Hong Kong, it's no longer a democratic regime insofar as it ever was. And sitting behind it is um, Communist China Party, who, you know, one can spend the next half hour listing their various human rights abuses. Um, so that it might be said that that that's not a good analogy. Well, it, it, it's not. It's, I, I accept it's, it's not a uh, it's not an analogy. It's an example. It's a question of degree. But I think that when it comes to Hong Kong, lots of judges were very happy to sit in Hong Kong when it was a British colony. Uh, all members of the House of Law Lords as privy councillors were happy to sit on appeals. And it wasn't remotely democratic. Didn't worry anybody. It then became a bit more democratic in the last burst, last year or two of British, when it was under British control. But it was a pretty pallid form of democracy. And when we agreed to start having judges sitting there post-1997, it was accepted that Beijing could override any decision of, of, of the Hong Kong court. It rarely did, and it rarely has, uh, but it had that power. So you're right to say that it's a different kettle of fish from the UK, but while it's undoubtedly got more problematic in the past two or three years, the difference is not that great compared with what, what it was, but it still is significantly different. And while I, for my part, think I can properly stay and will properly stay for the moment, I can understand people who might feel differently. David, can I ask you a final, final question, which is really standing back after um, such a long and eminent career and really to get a sense whether now looking forward, both domestically and internationally, from a rule of law perspective, you're, you're an optimist or a pessimist? I think it's probably more a question of my character than my than, than any guide to what will happen. Um, I, I think that predicting the future is, I suspect, by definition, impossible. And um, whether I, I'm by character a cautious optimist, that's how I see myself, whether rightly or not, I don't know. So I suppose... My feeling for this country, at any rate, is that we're going through unusual and, frankly, uncomfortable time uh, politically and constitutionally, but not desperately bad or unfortunate. And my own belief, and certainly my hope, is that with our rather unusual constitutional system, with its advantages of flexibility and our very long culture of decency, if to use a rather old-fashioned possibly an appropriate word, that we will weather it. But um, there are causes for concern. Yep. David, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Well, Murray, Helen, a completely fascinating uh, discussion with uh, Lord Newberger uh, made me wish the retirement age for the Supreme Court was longer than it was, so we could still benefit from him uh, being on it. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm interested, though, in your takeaways from what he was saying. Helen. Well, I think what I found most interesting was the discussion of culture and how important it is in any um, political system for people to have a a strong sense of um, their role in continuing a culture and to be sensitive about it and to, and, and to think about it in a, a questioning way. Um, that's what I found fascinating about the way he was describing um, what a judge should do. Murray, you run the Bingham Institute on the rule of law. What was your what was your takeaway from uh, Lord Newberger's analysis as to where we are with it? The main one, very similar to Helen's. I, I really like his very sophisticated idea of the rule of law um, as a cultural artefact. Um, that was really what came across very strongly in all his answers. It's not a principle or a, a, a concept or something we can just pin down and define. It, it's a culture, and, and to flourish, it needs a, a really strong underpinning culture, which has been one of the really interesting things observing what's been going on on the other side of the Atlantic in the transition from Trump to Biden. So I, I really like his approach to the rule of law in that sense, but also wanted to comment on a couple of things that he said, which I thought were particularly interesting. First of all, the degree of the consensus he says he thinks exists about the thicker, richer, more substantive conception of the rule of law these days uh, in the judiciary and the legal profession in this country, at least, uh, because that is definitely coming under strain from the government. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, observation. And he clearly shares that in relation to rule of law protecting human rights adequately, complying with international law obligations, respecting democracy and guaranteeing access to courts as well. So really significant elements of the rule of law, he says there's a consensus about in this country. Secondly, on ouster clauses, I was interested that he agrees with concerns about what's in the Judicial Review and Courts Bill, because um, us legal anoraks are concerned about it essentially overturning Anna's Minnick, which of course no non-lawyers can understand what that means. Uh, and that's one of the challenges we've got to explain how fundamental what's going on with this bill actually is. But the bill essentially is going to make unreviewable errors of law which are made by creatures of statute, whether they're tribunals or ministers given powers. Um, and Lord Newberger was really clear that that's an incredibly dangerous slippery slope to start going down because it ends potentially in removing judicial review across a swathe of statutory powers. Uh, so I thought that was very significant as well. Well, thank you both um, very much. I mean, a completely fascinating and obviously vital um, discussion. Uh, that's it for this episode of the Matrix Law Pod. Uh, we'll be back soon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>